Welcome to What She Said. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. It's official, fall has finally arrived, and the cooler weather is beckoning us to nest, to find comfort in the warmth of our homes, and to indulge in the simple pleasures of life, like curling up with a good book. It's the season of change, and just as every leaf has its own story to tell, so do my guests this week. From the transformative power of personal experiences to the delightful world of fiction, I've got a show loaded with stories for everyone from 9 to 99. And for those who don't like to read, I, of course, have entertainment so you can couch potato in style. And I squeeze in a little money advice, too, since more than 50% of us in this country are feeling the crunch, present company included. Here's what's coming up. We kick things off with the incredible Phyllis Webstad, whose poignant journey from a childhood experience with an orange shirt has sparked a nationwide movement. Today, we delve into her new children's book, Every Child Matters, a testament to the resilience of Indigenous communities and the importance of understanding our shared history. Heather Dixon transports us into the world of suspense with her new novel, Burlington. A tale that promises to keep you on the edge of your seat, Heather's keen observations on suburban life and its secrets are not to be missed. Anne Brody is back, fresh from the whirlwind that is Tiff, and she's brought with her a selection of cinematic gems. First up, we have Stellar, starring the captivating Elle Maya Tailfeathers. We then move on to a surprising addition, in my view, as Anne introduces us to supermodels on Apple TV+, Plus, featuring iconic names like Naomi Campbell, Cindy Crawford, Linda Evangelista, and Christy Turlington. I thought it would be a vapid doc, but Anne says that isn't so. You'll want to stick around to find out why. Then you'll have to brace yourselves for a dose of humor and wit as I chat with the incomparable Brittlestar. His new book, Welcome to the Stupid Apocalypse, offers a hilarious take on life, politics, and the quirks of our oh-so-special times. And yes, there's a Ryan Reynolds endorsement, but we're here for Brittlestar's unique brand of humor. For those of us who've been feeling the financial pinch, and yes, that's pretty much all of us, Janet Gray is here to offer some sage advice. As a seasoned money coach, Janet's insights into financial planning and money management are both timely and invaluable. Lastly, we take a look at the world of young adult literature with Emily Pohl-Weary. Her upcoming novel, How to Be Found, promises a gripping tale of love, loss, and the ties that bind us. So light that scented candle, grab your pumpkin spice latte, and join me for this week's What She Said. I am beyond honored to introduce my first guest this week. Meet Phyllis Webstad, whose deeply personal experience has turned into a powerful movement for awareness and education. Phyllis's own story, which began with a simple orange shirt, has ignited a nationwide conversation about the impact of residential schools on Indigenous communities. Today, we're not only delving into her journey, but also discussing her new children's book, Every Child Matters, which aims to educate the younger generation about the significance of Orange Shirt Day and the history it represents. Welcome to What She Said, Phyllis. Yes, thank you for having me. Your personal story with the Orange Shirt has resonated with so many and sparked the Orange Shirt Day movement. Can you briefly share with our listeners the significance of that Orange Shirt and how it led to this National Day of Remembrance? The first Orange Shirt Day was uh, September of 2013 when I first uh, told my story when the TRC came to Williams Lake and uh, it hit social media. Uh, from the very first year, it has gone viral. And so we're now in the 10th year and this year is also the uh, third National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. The story that I told was I, I lived with my grandmother on the Dog Creek Reserve. I'm third generation survivor. So my grandmother was the first generation, all of her 10 children, including my mother and then myself. So when I turned six, Granny did as she had always done. She brought me to town and uh, bought me something to go to school in. And I chose a bright orange shirt. It was the early 70s, that crazy psychedelic colors. It was like bright and 
bright and exciting, just how I felt to be going to school for the first time. And so when I got there, my clothing, my shirt was taken, everybody's clothing was taken, and I, I don't have a memory of ever wearing it again. Your new children's book, Every Child Matters, is a testament to your commitment to educating the younger generation. What inspires you to write this book and what message do you hope children take away from it? I didn't grow up knowing my history or really knowing much about who I was or where I came from. I was actually ashamed of that. And so when I started learning uh, what happened and, and, uh, that is reflected in this book. It talk, it starts out with how it was before everything was all messed up with uh, colonialism and the coming of the settlers, how we had our dances, our languages, our families were intact. We had, um, our songs and, and then with the, uh, it doesn't talk about the others, but residential school, how our, we were forbidden with government to sing our songs and dance our dances. And granny wasn't allowed to speak her language at residential school. So as a result, I'm not a, a speaker. And uh, so, and the family was broken. And uh, so I tell my own shared story in this book as well. But then it, it ends with hope, hope for the future, that uh, we're learning, uh, we're still here. They didn't succeed in in uh, getting rid of us, and our families are coming back together. My son and his wife are the first. Uh, my grandchildren are the first in five generations to be raised by their mother and their father. Uh, we're learning our songs. I got my grandchildren drums and and uh, they drummed while I sang once when I was babysitting them and because um, I was teaching them the value of the drums. They just had them laying around on the floor. So when I got there, I got them to pick them up and I taught them that those drums are sacred. You don't just leave them laying around. And um, so then they started drumming and then they said, sing, Grandma. <laughs> so I started singing. Um, so, yeah, so the, the book ends with hope for the future and uh, the relearning of, of, um, of and being who we were meant to be with our songs, our dances, our language, our families. The, the title, Every Child Matters, is is powerful and and resonates deeply. How do you believe this message can help in the healing and reconciliation process for Indigenous communities and the broader Canadian society? Mm, yeah, that's a packed question. <laughs> um, so the uh, when we were creating Orange Shirt Day, we uh, thought we needed a slogan, a saying to go with it uh, with the day. So Orange Shirt Day was created to honor survivors and their families and to remember those that never made it home. And when I told my story, I talked about how when I was there, I could be tired, sick, hungry, lonely, and there wasn't any adults to tend to us. Five and six-year-olds should not be comforting each other, and that's what was happening. And... uh so I felt like I did not matter when I was there. And so in the beginning, that's where that started. And uh, uh, survivors are adults and elders now, but they were children when they were there. And also the ones that didn't come home, they mattered. So the Orange Shirt Society is a society of reconciliation. And the more we talked about it, it fit as well. So in the book and in my, when I present, I say, no matter what color of the medicine wheel you are, every child matters in the past, the present, and the future. Orange Shirt Day, you know, as you mentioned earlier, is now uh, in its 10th year and has grown significantly over the years with schools, organizations, uh, communities across the country participating. What are your hopes for the future of this movement and how can individuals contribute to its growth? Yeah, I um, I didn't plan this. Uh, even if I had a business plan and tried to execute the whole thing, it would never have uh, been the way it is. And 
so I, I have no idea what the next 10 years bring, but I plan on being alive for the next 20 plus years and I look forward to that. Um, but I know I would like to, um, maybe do uh, a couple of international travels, perhaps, um, uh, maybe the U.S. Uh, there's, they're starting to, um, recognize the day as well. And, uh, yeah, to, to just keep suiting up and showing up and doing what's next and doing it with a good mind and a good heart, but at the same time, taking care of myself. And, um, I was telling my assistant today, I need some sunshine and I need some air. I need to go for a walk today. We have another event and events planned for the next few days. So, and a good meal, <laughs> a good hot meal. So I, I haven't had those three things in a couple of days. So that's what I'm craving. For parents and educators who are looking to introduce the topic of residential schools and Indigenous history to children, aside from your book, uh, what advice or resources would you recommend? Mm, There's lots out there. There's so many great books by Indigenous authors for children on residential school, including my books. And and, um, there's no rules. It just start conversation and uh, children are really good at uh, I believe the children across this country are teaching the adults around the kitchen table about this and then the adults can um, uh, research it a bit further I've been doing a lot of corporates lately but in the beginning it was uh, elementary and high schools that were that were on board It's fitting for every child matters that the children are the one leading the conversation. It's perfect. Uh, I can't thank you enough for joining me. It is such a pleasure to have you here. I want people to be able to keep up with all that you share, get your book, uh, find out more about the Orange Shirt Society. So where are all the various places they can go to find out more? You can go to any bookstore to get my books wherever you would normally buy a book. Uh, Our website is orangeshirtday.org, and my publisher is Medicine Wheel Publishing. So if you Google, you'll find the link uh, to go to their site. All right, incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today, Phyllis. Yes, thank you for having me, Gukshjam. More of What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up. CareToKnow.ca is a free resource where Canadians receive the latest health information, updates on new and existing treatments, and advice from Canadian doctors via email. After enrolling at CareToKnow.ca, you'll receive accurate and reliable information from trusted Canadian medical experts delivered directly to your inbox. Members can also access the website for information on a variety of health-related topics. Through resources like vodcasts, podcasts, and live webinars, Canadian experts discuss how to manage a number of medical conditions and provide the latest knowledge and advice to help you make informed decisions about your family's health with your own healthcare provider. To sign up and start learning more about the health matters that impact you most, enroll in caretoknow.ca today. In this next interview, we're peering into the world of suspense, secrets, and the high stakes of suburban life with Heather Dixon, the author of the gripping novel Burlington. Heather is no stranger to the world of contemporary fiction, having penned titles like Last Summer at the Lake House. Beyond her literary pursuits, she's a managing editor of a nonprofit website and has lent her voice to various platforms discussing motherhood. Residing just outside Toronto with her family, Heather's experiences and keen observations have culminated in a tale that's both thrilling and thought-provoking. Welcome to the show, Heather. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Burlington delves into the complexities of suburban life, especially among the elite mothers of River Park Elementary. What inspired you to explore this particular setting and its dynamics? Um, well, I, I live in the suburbs, and I know they can, they can get a bad rap for multiple reasons. Um, you know, people who hate the suburbs seem to really hate the suburbs. But, uh, but I didn't want to paint my setting with like the typical, you know, character of a suburb kind of brush. Because um, I, I see the benefit in growing up in a quiet area where there's lots of green space, uh, 
living close to water. Um, but at the same time, I know that the suburbs come with, you know, complexities that I wanted to explore. And in particular for me, uh, when my oldest daughter was going to kindergarten for the first time, um, I was walking her to school and I found, um, I didn't, I thought I understood school because I had been there and done that, but I didn't quite know how to navigate this new world of the the schoolyard again. Um, there were like little groups and unwritten rules and I felt sort of out of place. So that's where the beginning idea of the thread came from or the beginning thread of the idea came from and the plot and characters and storyline kind of all developed from there. And your protagonist, uh, May Roberts, grapples with the challenges of fitting in and the allure of belonging. How much of May's journey is influenced by your own experience? Uh, I think fitting in and belonging are kind of universal feelings, you know, that all humans want. Um, it was interesting to me to see a couple of uh, reviews that said they found May annoying because she wants to fit in. And I was a little, I was a little surprised by that because I think it's rare that we have so much self-confidence or that we don't care what anyone thinks about us or if we have friends. Um, I think we all want to feel valued and we're looking for friendship. And so that's, again, something I wanted to explore um, through the, through the book, a theme that I wanted to bring in. And um, personally, I would say that I found after having kids, it was very hard for me to find time for my friends. Um, And I think part of the reason for, you know, keeping friends or making them when you're in this stage is, because of the pressure, I think, on women to be, you know, the perfect mom, um, the stress and tension of motherhood. Um, I once wrote a blog called I Suck at Being a Friend Right Now, and it tended to resonate with a lot of women, but it was about how I felt guilty for not having as much time for my friends as I would like when I was a young mom. Um, But there were just so many demands on my time uh, from my kids, and I felt pressure to get it right and be the best mother I could be. And so that was like another theme I wanted to explore in this book, because I think it's something I felt, and I knew there were other women out there who felt that as well. Um, and I think it's, it can cause you to want to search out friendship among other women to feel understood and, and uh, heard and valued. I remember that blog, Heather. You just yeah. jogged my memory. I actually remember uh, that blog from years ago. We traveled in the same circles around the, that time. So I remember when you published that. Um, the novel touches upon schoolyard politics. Uh, it's clear that these dynamics aren't limited to kids. How do you how do you think adult interactions mirror those of younger generations, especially in tight, tight-knit communities? Um, I think sometimes we might not grow up as much as we think I, we'd like to think we do. Uh, but, you know, I do think um, as adults, it's a, it's just as much a matter of finding your people, I think, as it is when you're young. And um, we all have our people out there. And once you find them, I think it's much easier to feel comfortable in our own skin and with who we are. Um, yeah. What do you hope readers take away from May's journey then and the broader themes of the book? Um, I, I hope overall that people, you know, enjoy it and are entertained, first of all, because I love nothing more than when I pick up a book and I'm captivated by it and I can't put it down. And I love getting sucked into a story. Um, and my dream is to kind of create that experience for another reader with a book. Um, but I'm really proud of it. And I, I especially love the parts where I write about motherhood in it. And I love the thought I put into the themes and the, and the little messages um, but overall, I just hope that, you know, it finds its readers and that people are entertained by it because there's nothing like getting swept up in a good book. Well, you know, this uh, this interview is airing on an episode where I have a lot of books to share because to me, fall is the best time to curl up on the couch under a blanket with a good book. So where can people find your book, uh, perhaps even your other book and keep up with you? Uh, yeah, so Burlington is available in store across Canada in Indigo. Um, you can also find it online there. It's available on Kindle and Kobo and also on Amazon um, and also in some local libraries. And if it's not there, you can request it as well. And I can be found on Instagram as Heather Dixon Writer um, and on Twitter as H Dixon Writer. 
All right. Incredible. Heather, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, TIFF continues, and we have a very exhausted Ann Brody with us today who has been watching everything everywhere. So, Ann, what do you got for us this week? Well, TIFF wrapped up yesterday with the awards show, and I was so delighted with the results. The Canadian films and independent films did so well. Um, you know, the stars may not have been there, but it was it was a great time, and I think everyone enjoyed it. So I want to start with Stellar, which is a really intriguing film from Darlene Naponce, and she is an Indigenous filmmaker. This one stars Elle Maya Tailfeathers, who we love, and Braden Clark. And there are a couple of people sitting in a bar in Sudbury, and they're looking out the window, uh, and it's chaos. Everything is on fire. People are running. Things are falling out of the sky, but they're not moved. They just sit there and talk to the bartender played by Ross of Sutherland. So it's a really philosophical thing. It's about how the mines were created, that an asteroid fell to Earth a billion years ago, and and um, Mother Earth split the ground, and serpents swam, and uh, he braid. And now it's up to he and she to braid the rift again. So it's quite an experience. It's sort of magic realism. And um, tradition, indigenous tradition, and surrealism. I have to tell you, I, I laughed a little bit to myself when you mentioned they were sitting at a bar and all this chaos is going around, and they're just sitting there. That feels like life, um, you know, right now because there is chaos all around us, isn't it? The- and we're just moving on. Yeah, yeah, just it's crazy. So, wow, that that actually hit hard. All right, so I'm surprised. I have to tell you that you put supermodels on the list. Oh, I did not want to. I thought this is going to be so junky. It's going to be just a hagiography. Oh, we love these girls. They're so beautiful, blah, blah, blah. Well, it wasn't at all. So you've got Cindy Crawford, Christy Turlington, Linda Evangelista, Naomi Campbell. So they we follow them over the past 30 years. By the way, they've retained a really strong uh, friendship, the group of them, ever since. Um, Linda's had terrible health experiences. Um, but, you know, so they do recall their past. And Cindy talks about this time Oprah made her stand up and show her audience her body. So they went through a lot of stuff. I mean, they lived the life. They were the four most famous women in the world at points in the 80s and 90s. But they didn't have it easy. Nobody has it easy. And these girls didn't have it easy. So it was very interesting to me in the end. And I was expecting nothing. Yeah, I got to tell you, that's exactly what I thought. And I would have absolutely passed it by had you not put this on the list. So I will watch it when it comes out now. Um, Carolyn Taylor, this trailer, I I, <laughs> I laughed. First off, I love Baroness Von Sketch. Such a great show. Yep. Yep. And Carolyn Taylor is a delight. But I also saw She's Mae Martin. One. I, yeah, and I also saw Mae Martin in it, and I love Mae Martin. So what's this about? Yes. So the whole shtick is this. Carolyn has her, uh, she was so affected by one of the Olympics uh, that that's when her queerness came out, and that's when her love of sport and skating, well, she can't skate for peanuts. So she brings all these internationally res- renowned skaters, Olympic gold medalists, to teach her to skate in a couple of weeks. And it's hilarious. It is so funny. And it's on, um, a- uh, what is it, HBO? Yes, um, Crave. And I just can't recommend it highly enough. She's so winning. And these people are standing in the in the wings going, what? I'm an Olympic gold skater, and I would never try that. <laughs> so it's a lot of fun. The little train that could. She is, she is incredible and, and funny and humor. That's what we need right now. Um, yeah, we do. Let's get, we're going to go a little dark here with um, Savior Complex. There's a woman in uh, the States named, uh, what is her name? Renee Bach. She went to Uganda, uh, fundamentalist Christian, um, founded a, a medical clinic, did all the medical treatments herself based on YouTube. And this is part of the whole no white saviors movement in Africa, where they're so fed up of celebrities and uh, people coming in to save them and having their pictures taken with them and 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 then leaving. 
Um, but these, this one was actually putting children at risk and 126 people died, children died in her care. She says, uh, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. So she figures that she was without blame. It's just the most astonishing lack of self-awareness and reality. So Save Your Complex is on HBO on the 26th. All right. If you can stomach it, I guess people might watch it. Uh, all right. Let's, anything else? We got like 30 seconds. Anything else you want to point out? Great Canadian Baking Show and Remembering the Children, the Day of Truth and Reconciliation on the 30th. It's Absolutely. an all-network show. So be there and wear your orange shirt that day. Of course. All right. And thank you so much for joining me. And uh, you're off for a couple of weeks to recuperate. <laughs> so, <laughs> so have a great holiday, Anne. Thanks, Candace. More of What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up. Feeling like your teen has become a stranger overnight? Allie Payne, a renowned expert featured on What She Said, understands your struggles. With her step-by-step -step framework, she's helped thousands of parents like you rebuild that precious bond. Don't wait. Discover Allie's secrets to a mutually respectful and connected relationship today at AllyPayne.com. And now back to Candace Sampson and what she said. In a world where common sense seems to be on the endangered list, there is a beacon of hope. Joining me today is the hilarious and insightful Stuart Reynolds, better known to many as Brittle Star. With a massive online following, Brittle Star has been making us laugh and think with his witty takes on life, politics, and the quirks of social media. Today, we're diving into his new book, Welcome to the Stupid Apocalypse: Survival Tips for the Dumbageddon. And full disclosure, I'm mainly here for the Ryan Reynolds endorsement that appears in the book, but let's see what Stuart has to offer. Welcome to What She Said, Stuart. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Nice score on Ryan Reynolds right? in there. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so this is the part of the interview where I'm supposed to ask you why you wrote this book, right. but I think the only ones who won't know are stupid. <laughs> so let's humor, let's humor them. Sure. Why did you write this book and why now? Well, I I think, you know, in the past like seven or so years, we've noticed things getting a little bit dumber and people are doing more dumb things and feeling okay about doing dumb things. Um, but I mean, I, I, need, I need to also sort of state the fact that this book is less about pointing a finger at a specific group of people and saying that they're stupid and kind of like gesturing wildly in every direction, including our own and saying, this is all stupid. Let's all take a breath. Let's just step back, sit down for a bit, take a breath and reevaluate what we're doing. So, I mean, hopefully if that comes through, then, that, then I've done my bit of good. Excellent. So you, you describe this as a field guide for life. So what's the most mm. essential survival tip you can offer listeners right now to surviving the stupid apocalypse? I think it's, I think the first step to getting through some, uh, being stupid and, and doing dumb things is, uh, is realizing that you might be stupid and you might be doing dumb things. That's the key. When you think I'm absolutely right, there's absolutely no way I'm wrong. There's, I'm totally on the right side of this issue. You, you've got to just like, again, take a step back, take a breath and make sure because you might not be. Not everyone, you know, doesn't matter how smart you are in one area, you might not be smart in every area. That's so true. You know, especially the last couple of years, it is so easy to get baited into these conversations online. Oh, yeah. And you just, you're enraged and you're not thinking. And, yeah. you know, you see it all the time. And I hate to both sides of this, but you do see it often, both sides. Sure. Yeah, I think that, you know, we've been kind of trained by social media. Social media is amazing. It's wonderful and it can do tremendously good things. Um, but it also has had the unfortunate side effect of making us feel like we have to react to everything we see. Um, we have to get outraged at things. We have to support things. We have to click like. If we don't click like, you're a monster. It's like we don't have to react to everything. To me, social media is like it's if, if you've gone into a bar in regular life, you go into a bar and you you sort of like focus on the person you're with or whoever you're talking to. In social media, it's like going into a bar, but you can hear clearly every single thing that every single person is saying. And a lot of that 
it doesn't require your reaction because a lot of it's dumb. So you could just kind of move on and ignore it. But I mean, it's been, we have to kind of train ourselves to almost be desensitized a little bit and kind of be like, or focus our perception more on, you know, what's happening as opposed to, and what's actually important to us, what what's actually warrants a reaction from us. And it's difficult. You have over 600 million views on your videos. So you, you've mm. struck a chord with people. What do you think it is about your comedic approach that resonates so deeply you know what it is? I'll tell you what it is, Candace. It's, it's, it's the fact that I'm an aspirational influencer. It's like the, it's those really good looking people that hold up products. I'm like that, except that my kind of aspiration is I show people just how low the bar can go. And I re- <laughs> and it's like, listen, you're trying way too hard. It's not as, not as hard as you think it is. And I show them how to be happy with mediocrity. That's, that's the key to my aspirational influencing. Can we talk about the other Reynolds for a minute? My cousin? Sure. <laughs> How did that all, that this whole collaboration come to be and he wrote in the book? Um, so uh, Ryan has been following me for a little bit and then I was like, oh my God, Ryan Reynolds is following me. And so I followed him back and then he, this is like coming up on three years ago and uh, he DM'd me and he said, you know, I'd like to send you a case of gin if, and, and if for whatever reason you don't like gin, I'd like to send you a case of gin. And I was like... <laughs> I like, I like free gin. That's my favorite type of gin. And so he did. And then we sort of were back and forth chat. It was really weird, like DMing and he's like, well, let's have dinner and stuff. And I'm like, and I remember telling Shannon this about having uh, the offer to have dinner with him and Blake. And she's like, there is no way in hell I'm sitting in a restaurant across from Blake Lively eating. That is just not going to happen. So, I mean, but he's, he's helped me with lots of stuff. He helped me with some film option stuff, which was great. And then, uh, I asked him if he would be interested in writing the forward for the book and he didn't respond. And then I asked him again and then he did. So yeah, that was basically it. Okay. So let's go back to social media. How do you weed through and find the most absurd gems for your content? That must take a lot of time. <laughs> You'd think it would, right? You think it's like I found a diamond or like I've gone hunting for truffles or something. It's like stupid, stupid truffles, but it's not. I mean, they're, they're just there in the open. They're just, they're just absolutely there in the open. I think, you know, one of the things that motivates me now and has in the past few years about for making content, video content on social media is when I see people getting bent out of shape about things, I think, whoa, you're wasting your energy getting bent out of shape of this because it's a non-issue. One of my favorite, this this is one of my guiding quotes. I love quotes in general. One of my guiding quotes is a, a former counselor here in Stratford, Ontario, where I'm from. And he's a, he was a farmer, uh, older guy. And it was way back when the uh, provincial government had said that they would allow women to go topless. Uh, and then they, they kind of, Part of that, they said to municipalities, but you guys can decide if you allow women to go topless in your in your parks, your city parks. And City Hall was like the council was all up in arms. No, oh my God, what are we going to do with this? What's going to happen? The parks are going to be overrun with breasts. It's going to be weird. And uh, this counselor said, by winter, this whole issue will be dead. And it's, and it's, <laughs> it's like, yeah, exactly. Let's not get bent out of shape over this because there's some real life practicalities that will kick in. So don't worry about it. It's fine. It's okay. Is there is there something right now that you find particularly absurd happening in in you know Canadian the Canadian space? Uh, yeah, I think there's you know it's I think politics has become all consuming, which I hate. I mean, I've never been an, <clears throat> excuse me, I've never been a fan of politics, but. Uh, you can't avoid it now. Like it's just, you, you have to, it feels like you have to take sides. And I kind of don't like that. Cause I mean, I, I mean like being totally honest over the course of my voting life, I've voted for all three major parties. Same. I, I say that all the yeah. time. I voted for every party. And I've been like, this guy's great. This guy's running in our riding. He's really great. And he's yeah. this party. Well, I don't, whatever. He's really good. And I like him or whatever. She's really good in this party. That doesn't matter. Um, whereas now it feels like, Oh, I can't, I can't support this, you know, like there's, there's parts of things I just can't support. So that means I have to feel a certain way about this. And then it makes you sound like, uh, I hate the fact that it makes you sound like a, a raw, raw cheerleader for, you know, a particular political party. It's like, no, I'm not. They're, they're all flawed. They're all totally flawed, but it's, I think that's the stupidest thing right now. I want to get past this point where politics becomes less entertainment and more boring. I want it to be boring again. I want it to be yes. like about policy choices and tax policy and stuff. It's like, eh, whatever. I don't need to listen to this. And, you know, because everything is so serious now, politics, current events, how do you strike that balance between humor and sensitivity when discussing these things? 
Um, I mean, I think the key is to not, you don't want to outright make fun of people for thinking a certain thing, except for sometimes. Um, rarely, t- rare. It's rare that you want to do that. I think mainly you want to kind of just hold up a mirror and go, this is a little bit silly, don't you think? Uh, and if you can find the right words to do that, that's kind of the most effective way because I think people have to, I mean, the thing is, is that, you know, there's so much misinformation, there's so much disinformation, there's so much spin uh, that it's easy for anybody, doesn't matter of all walks of life, uh, to be taken in and to be, and to, to sort of, you know, and f- get entrenched in these beliefs on things that might be wrong. So you have to offer them kind of a nice way out. And that was, I mean, that's, I'm, I'm not great at that all the time for sure. Certainly throughout the pandemic, I wasn't awesome at it. Uh, but at the same time, there was, you know, different things call for different measures, basically. Is Shannon your filter? Do you run a lot of things through Shannon? <laughs> D- does she g- does she give you? Does she say no? That's too far. Um, yes, she does. Now, usually, she says it's too far, like way before it's too far. Um, so she is a very cautious person, and usually, I will uh, ask her only when I'm really, really curious of like I'm missing something, and then she'll provide her perspective. And sometimes I, I agree with her. Other times, I know that if she goes, I think that's a bit too far. That I know that I've hit the right spot. That's the, that's the perfect spot. <laughs> All right. Well, let's close out this interview then. If, if for people listening, do you have one piece of advice for people trying to maintain their sanity in this mm. crazy, crazy time? Uh, my one piece of sanity is you don't have to react to everything. It, it, it's, it's okay. You don't have to react to everything. You can just take care of you. All right. Excellent. I love following your content. I, I don't miss anything. So where can people listening keep up with you and find the book? So they can uh, look for me on any social media platform. Just search for Brittle Star. And you'll see my bespectacled, smiling face. And if you want to find out information about the book, you can go to stupidpocalypse.com. And it gives you all the links for all where to buy it, the information to go to your local bookstore, whatever you need. And also we're going on tour. So we'll maybe see you in Calgary, Winnipeg or Ottawa or wherever else we're going. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me today, Stuart. Thank you so much for having me. More of What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up. Family Dental Guelph is where the future of dentistry unfolds. Dr. Mandeep Johal offers an unparalleled blend of expertise combined with a vision that seamlessly ties dental health to your overall vitality. Dr. Johal doesn't just look at your teeth, she understands the bigger narrative of well-being. Delve into a world where every aspect of your health is cherished and your smile and vitality coexist in beautiful harmony. Find out more about the future of dental care today at FamilyDentalGuelph.com. And now back to Candace Sampson and what she said. As Canadians grapple with rising consumer debt, understanding its implications and seeking solutions has become more important than ever. In this next interview, we're taking a closer look with Janet Gray from Money Coaches Canada. With her extensive experience as a certified financial planner and her regular contributions to major media outlets, Janet offers a unique perspective on the financial challenges many Canadians are facing right now. So let's explore the current debt landscape, its impact on our daily lives, and the steps we can take to navigate these uncertain times. Welcome to What She Said, Janet. Hello. So so consumer debt in Canada has reached a new record high. So can you give us a snapshot of the current situation and why this is so concerning? Well, you know, it, it seems like it's surprising, but I don't think it is a surprise. I mean, of course it's going to be high. Um, people have taken on debt, whether they mean it mean it in ways that they have to spend for on their basics. Like some people are using it to buy their groceries and, and then they don't have the means to repay it. Other people have been impacted by rising mortgage variable rates. So now they don't have the means to pay their credit cards. So it's impacting all levels of income. Although people, of course, with lower incomes are having a harder time to find the surplus to make payments. This is incredibly stressful. Not, I mean, not for a small minority of people. I mean, the majority of Canadians are feeling the stress. So how do you see this manifesting in the day-to-day lives of individuals and families? Hard choices. I mean, and tough choices. I mean, like I say, some people don't have the money. They they have to put the groceries, gas on their credit cards with no expectation of ever paying it down and maybe not even meeting the interest payments on that debt. 
it's it's hard. It's going to be hard choices. People need to maybe take a closer look at where they're actually spending the money and then backstepping and, and really, you know, here's what's needed and here's what's wanted. The wants are going to have to wait and crunch down on what's needed and maybe even look at the needed, you know, do some decisions when you're making your, doing your groceries. I'm buying no name. I'm not buying as much meat. I'm not buying, you know, vegetables out of season and stuff, making decisions. But that comes on having an awareness around your situation. And in times like this, when people are stress motivated, it's really hard to have that contemplation space to think these things through a little bit more. For those people who are able to, you know, look at their financial goals and still perhaps address some of them without, you know, you know, putting groceries on credit cards, which is just breaking my heart, um, you know, what can they do to, you know, still work towards the financial goals while dealing with all of these additional financial stressors? Yeah. It, and again, it's, it's really having a plan, right? A planner is going to say that. It's about having a plan. It's knowing that you might have two streams. You might have a stream of your surplus that's paying down debt, but at the same time, you still want to live your life and have some fun and enjoyment. So maybe you're going to, you know, agree that it may take me four years to pay down that debt. You know, that's reasonable. But at the same time, I'm saving towards other goals that are as important or more important, potentially. Do you have any advice for people who are now, you know, looking at delinquencies, uh, defaulting on loans, perhaps looking at bankruptcy? Speak up. You need to get professional help. You need to speak to a credit counselor or bankruptcy counselor, see what your options are. Call your credit card company, tell them you are having some difficulty, see if there's anything that they can suggest. Sometimes if it's due to a medical condition, they can actually give you some uh, space on making those payments. They can freeze the interest payments. Um, so speak to your lenders. The absence is of of um, interchange of, of uh, conversation with them is not good. If they don't hear from you, they presume that you're just, you know, blowing them off. They, you need to let them know that I'm consciously wanting to do that. I'm just not able to. I wanted to let you know I'm going to try hard. I can send you 10 bucks, but I can't send you a hundred bucks. Don't ignore it. Deal with it. Get some help. And do you feel that people avoid these conversations because there is a shame attached to, to this? Absolutely. Shame, guilt, embarrassment, um, you know, judgment. You know, people are, are harsh in harsh times. And, you know, be kind, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, knowing that, you know, what's the expression before God? No, by the grace of God, you know, it, it's kind of like if it's not you, it could be me. So be very empathetic and sympathetic to others and understand that someday you could be in that position. Like I said, it's not just low incomes that are affected. Some people's like higher incomes, they're paying exorbitant amounts. And I'm not talking high, like a millionaire. I'm talking about people that are making, you know, high, high hundred thousands or something. They're feeling the pain too. A little bit more, you know, flexibility, of course, but it's not, it's the, the gift that's giving to all income levels. And I hope that this, you know, obviously ends soon and we start to see some light at the end of the tunnel. But are there proactive measures people can be taking to ensure, you know, they're prepared for future economic uncertainties? Sure. Well, a lot of it is um, being aware of your situation, like, you know, keeping track of where you're spending your money is a good start, knowing what your future plans are and knowing that there is always going to be an emergency. If it's not your house, it's your car. If it's not one of those, it could be your pet. It could be a kid. There's always going to be a need for extra money. So go ahead and set aside some extra money. And again, start slowly. If you can only set aside 10 bucks a pay and start building so that you know that when this happens again, I've got a little bit of a safety cushion here that can offset some of that, you know, and, and, and plus the awareness that you're building will make you a little more in tune to see those things a little farther away than waiting till they're right in front of your face. All right. Janet, you are always sharing great information everywhere. Uh, I can't keep up with you. You are literally everywhere lately. So where can people uh, find you and, and, you know, get great information from you on other channels? Well, I think the best place is, I mean, Google me on Facebook. I, Google me on Facebook seems strange, but yeah, find me on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter, but also go to our website. There's lots of resources there. It's moneycoachescanada.ca. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. My pleasure.
In this next interview, we're diving deep into the intricate world of young adult literature with none other than award-winning author Emily Pohl-Weary. Her latest novel, How to Be Found, is set to release on September 26th and promises a gripping tale of two inner-city teens navigating life's tumultuous currents while highlighting the importance of chosen family. From captivating novels to stage plays and beyond, Emily's multifaceted talent resonates across various mediums. Emily, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. I'm so happy to be here, Candice. So How to Be Found deals with themes of identity, chosen family, and the challenges faced by inner city teens. So what inspired you to delve into this narrative? The novel is actually highly autobiographical. I won't get into exactly which parts are, but they're is a lot of similarity between Mishi and Trissa's life and my own. When I was a teen, I wanted to capture the feeling of being a teenager growing up in downtown Toronto. So both Mishi and Trissa are at crossroads of their lives with varying identities and experiences. How did you approach writing such contrasting characters and what do you hope readers will take away uh, from their journeys? Mishi's personality, Mishi's the main character, is a lot like me. At that age, I was the one who always loved to read, always had a stack of books on the go, and it wasn't hard to find teenagers. I've done a lot of work with teenagers over the years. I write for them, and I've run workshops for them in downtown Toronto. So I was thinking about the different kind of interests and personalities I'd met and interacted with in my life. And I think when you start from a place of really loving your characters, really wanting them to come alive and hoping that the the readers will um, relate to their quirks, to their humor, to their oddities, then you you can inhabit them in a way that that brings them to life. And, you know, hopefully readers will feel like they actually know the different characters in the novel intimately, even though they're made up. And your book also touches on the online sex industry, luxury nightclubs, and even a serial killer operating within the city. So how did you balance these really intense elements with the young adult genre? I have to say, in the past, I've written a lot of kind of fun, sassy characters, girl werewolves, girl detectives. I think there's a bit of a theme there because Mishi's obsessed with girl detectives too. But I tried, deliberately tried to move away from that and write what my teen years were like because I think we're doing a disservice to teens, especially teens who struggle uh, by showing them only characters who are kind of... um, you know, getting through without getting through life without too many scars and unscathed. I wanted to to show the kind of girls who are survivors and who who may make mistakes, but who figure things out for themselves and end up um, moving on and and living with their choices and the the good and bad that's happened to them in their lives. You you know, I like to ask this question. We're going to move a little bit into personal. I like to ask this. What got you into writing initially? (laughs) Honestly, Candice, it was a bit of a, a process of rejecting everything else. The only thing left was reading and telling stories. I love to read. I love more than reading. I just love stories of all kind. I love video games. I love movies. I love podcasts. I love radio. I love anything where someone's telling me a story. I like to listen to the voice and get a sense of the world and I can really imagine it all. And I also early on started to make up my own stories. So I cast my entire grade five class in The Wizard of Oz and rewrote it in French. I don't think I finished that script, but I was determined to create stories of my own and to take the stories that were out there and kind of give them a spin So and retell them. And um, I did try a few other jobs in my 20s and decided that I couldn't handle any of anything else. Writing was the only thing that I could 
fall into and love and it didn't feel like work. I mean, sometimes writing does feel like work because it can be grueling. And the novel is a bit like the, you know, marathon of art forms. And sometimes you do have to pull yourself back to the desk and keep working. But it really is this beautiful feeling that, you know, I'm, I'm transported into this world as these characters and writing became that built into built in entertainment system that I, you know, wasn't finding anywhere else. Well, you are clearly a wordsmith. You have you've written books uh, for, you know, young adult, middle school uh, plays, poetry. Uh, what's next for you? What's next? I'm working on another YA novel, another novel for teens, also set in Toronto, interestingly, because that's where I grew up. And I and I think um, it it inhab my my brain is kind of filled with all the details of of downtown Toronto in a way that I can't bring other communities and other cities to life. I have written stories set in other places, but I keep returning to Toronto right now. So once I'm finished the next novel, I I always have about five or six projects I want to work on next. Um, but I'd really like some time to to come up with something new. I've been thinking about Greek mythology and how it can be conformed. Those old stories can form the basis of for new stories. And I really am drawn to Persephone, the character of Persephone, the, the mythological figure. So I'm playing with a whole bunch of ideas in my head and I'll see which one sticks long enough for me to actually finish the novel. Well, I can't wait to hear about about it when you come back and tell us more about your next novel. But in the meantime, where can people find How to Be Found and how can they keep up with you? People can buy How to Be Found at their favorite local bookstore. They can buy it online and it's being recorded as an audiobook right now. So you can even listen to audiobooks are one of my favorite ways to uh, consume stories. Incredible. Emily, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Candice. Nice talking to you. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with my newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and X for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok and threads at Candice Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson wherever you listen to podcasts to catch past episodes and extended interviews. I'll be back next week with more What She Said. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. It is your favorite girl. That's right. It's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.